And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 19. So open up your Bibles to, to Psalm 19. We're, we're taking a break from our sermon series through Ephesians. And this, this break will be an extended break. It'll last several weeks. Um, but I promise I won't forget where we were at the very beginning of Ephesians 3. We'll be back there. Um, but the reason why we're taking this break is, as many of you know, that often in the summer... Um, I, I have a lot of uh, trips, uh, often uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, once or twice at least, and, um, and so the, the other pastors often do a different series in the summer. Last summer, that was the Psalms, and so, but we didn't get through all the Psalms, so we've got, we've got plenty more material there. And my, my summer travel begins early, so it's really kind of late spring early summer travel that's coming up with a couple of international trips as well as our denomination's annual General Assembly and so we're going to begin looking at the Psalms again, just like last summer, and we're going to start with uh, Psalm 19 this morning. And so Psalm 19 was written by King David. We don't know very much about the context of it, when it was written. However, the content of Psalm 19 is, is a reminder that all of creation, as well as God's Word, speaks to us about who God is and about who we are. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, Psalm 19 is about God's world book, creation, and about his word book, what we call our Bibles. And so I decided to preach Psalm 19 today for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, uh, because you know, we can always use a reminder about what creation and about what the Bible has to say to us about God and about ourselves and I thought it would be especially a timely reminder for our soon-to-be graduating high school seniors. And I also think that Psalm 19 is just a, simply a great way to begin our summer study of the Psalms over these next several weeks. Uh, C.S. Lewis, many of you are familiar with him, written very you know, many uh, well-known books, Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, Chronicles of Narnia series. He became a Christian um, as an adult. And uh, he once called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And in many ways, Psalm 19 really is, it's extraordinarily beautiful. Beautiful poetry. But as another commentator pointed out, Psalm 19's theology, and I would even say its application, is just as powerful as its poetry. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word, Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. And so we'll look at this, this psalm under four headings. We'll look at the sky, look at the scriptures, look at our sin, and then lastly, look at our Savior. So look at the sky, look at the scripture, look at our sin, look at our Savior. And so Psalm 19 begins with David telling us to look at the sky. We see in verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Okay, but why does David say, look at the sky? Now notice, he doesn't say, look at the sky, because I want you to see the glory of the sky. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. David says, look at the sky, but why? Because the sky is telling us something about God. Something about God's glory. Now, I think it's difficult to to define what we mean when we talk about God's glory, but let me attempt to do this. God's glory is his heaviness, his weightiness, the weightiness of God's worth, his value, his importance, his significance. You know, I've read that God's glory can be understood as the sum of all his perfections, See, something like this is along the lines of what's meant by God's glory. And we see here, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Okay, but what is the sky declaring and proclaiming about God? Well, that God exists, and that he's powerful, and that he's glorious. There's a God who made everything, and David says, don't you see his handiwork? And don't you see that it's glorious, that he is glorious? And every time I I read Psalm 19, I think about a passage in the New Testament, which I think Psalm, which is kind of a parallel to Psalm 19. That passage is Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, where Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them, and the them is all mankind. Even those who actively suppress the truth about God that the sky never ceases to proclaim, Paul writes, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse." To the sky and really all of creation, but the sky is declaring and proclaiming that God exists and He's powerful and He's glorious. And what Psalm 19 tells us is that the sky never stops speaking and declaring and proclaiming these truths about God. Like look at Psalm 19, verse 2 Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. 
That phrase, pours out, pours out speech, suggests an unstoppable, unceasing, without pause, bubbling up of a fountain. You know, just this, this never-ending, never-stopping, unceasing, without pause, bubbling up of a spring of water that happens day after day after day and night after night after night, revealing knowledge of our God's existence and his power and his creativity and his majesty and his glory. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce says, the skies reveal the glory of God every single night of the week, every week of the year, year after year, and they have done this since their creation. There's never been a moment in the history of the human race when the heavens were not testifying to us about God. But what's fascinating, though, is that there's a a paradoxical nature about this speech, this speech that that the heavens are declaring and proclaiming, because it's, it's a wordless speech, And yet it speaks to everyone. It's a wordless speech, and yet it speaks to everyone, everywhere, all the time, about God. And that's where David goes next. Look at Psalm 19, verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. So the sky, and and all of creation for that matter, is not literally speaking. Okay, so you you didn't hear the moon speak to you last night. Okay, it's not literally speaking, yet it is. Yet with wordless speech, the sky is still proclaiming an unmistakable message. Just as clear as if the sun, the moon, and the stars had voices. That's what verse 4 says. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. There's this paradoxical nature, because it's, it's wordless speech, they never stop speaking. The, the old preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way, every man may hear the voices of the stars. Their teaching is not addressed to the ear, and it is not uttered in articulate sounds. It is pictorial and directed to the eye and heart. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That all people, everyone, everywhere, see what the sky never ceases to say about God. That that he exists and that he's powerful and that he's creative and intentional and majestic and glorious. However, as we've already mentioned, Romans 1 tells us that many people will suppress the truth, and they'll exchange the glory of God, which the sky never stops declaring, for a lie. Now, I know that we have, in a room this size, we have many different, we have many different um, careers and specialties. Uh, we have many different interests and hobbies. You know, the, the students who were just up here who are graduating are going off to very different careers But know this, no matter where you go and no matter what you're looking at in God's creation, that all creation testifies to the existence and the power and the design and the glory of God. Listen again to this this next quote from James Boyce. I think this is very helpful. He says, every individual part of nature testifies to its creator. So So that whatever part you happen to be looking at, whatever part you happen to be studying at the university... 
Whatever part you happen to be focused on in your career will pour forth knowledge. If you look at the stars, they testify to a God of great power who made them. If you study the human body, you will find that the body testifies to an all-wise creator. The petals of a flower, a blade of grass, a snowflake, the intricacies of the atom, the nature of light, physical laws like gravitational attraction, the second law of thermodynamics or relativity, all testify abundantly to a divine mind that lies behind them. And we've even heard some of the most brilliant, secular, unbelieving, scientific minds the world has ever known admit in their own way that even they have heard whispers of what creation declares and proclaims day after day and night after night about God. One of them was John Wheeler. He's now deceased, but uh, the New York Times called him a visionary physicist. He's the man who coined the term black hole, and he said this, when I first started studying, I saw the world as composed of particles. Looking more deeply, I discovered waves. Now, after a lifetime of study, it appears that all existence is the expression of information. Or that the famous atheist Richard Dawkins said, Richard Dawkins said this at the beginning of one of his books, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. But then he goes on in the rest of that book to, uh, to disprove everything that David writes in Psalm 19 and what Paul writes in Romans 1, because to not to fail to do so would mean that he would not be able to suppress the truth that all of creation proclaims and declares to all men and women everywhere all the time. Cosmologists have discovered that that we live in a universe that's built for us, designed for us. For example, if the, the force of gravity in our universe was only slightly stronger, then all the stars would be red dwarfs and it would be too cold to support life on Earth. But if it was only slightly weaker, all the stars would be blue giants burning too fast for life to develop on Earth. You see, the fundamental forces of the universe, by God's design, just happen to have the exact numerical value required to make life possible. As, as Paul Davies, astrophysicist and professor at Arizona State, and I don't believe he's a believer, he once asked this question, why is nature so ingeniously, one might even say suspiciously, friendly to life? It's almost as if a grand designer had it all figured out. And there's more that could be said about the design that we now see and that we're learning more about in individual cells and the DNA code, but, but Psalm 19 focuses on the sky, and so let's, let's stay looking at the sky. And, and where David goes next in Psalm 19 is to look at the sun. So look at the end of verse 4 through verse 6. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, I don't know if you've, what, you, what you think about the sun. I don't know if you've ever thought of the sun as anything more than a flaming ball of gas, but that's not how David saw the sun. That he saw the sun as something so magnificent and significant and extraordinary and powerful that, that nothing is hidden from its heat. And yet what he says is that the Son is merely being an obedient servant to its creator and its master. 
the God who exists and who's intentional and who's powerful and who's glorious. See, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And in these verses, David gives us two images for how to think about the sun. On the one hand, the sun's like a bridegroom, walking down, if not racing down the aisle at his wedding to claim his bride. And the sun's like a strong man, a warrior, a runner who runs and never gets tired. And David says that this, this wedding procession takes place day after day after day. This race takes place day after day after day. And the sun never becomes weary, never grows tired, never takes a day off because God exists. And because God is that powerful. And that God never grows weary and God never takes a day off. And therefore, there is nothing hidden from the sun's heat. And that's intentional by God. And so we, we must know here in Houston that, that God must really love us because we get extra heat, you know, from the sun. But the heavens declare the glory of God and the power, glory, and majesty of the sun only point to the even greater power, glory, and majesty of God as creator. Commentator Alec Motier says this, the created order both tells and does not tell. It speaks to our intuitions that there is a glorious God who created such marvels. But its message is limited. That's why, that's why verse 6 is not the end of Psalm 19. It cannot tell us everything we need to know about God and salvation in him. That's why Psalm 19 is an end at verse 6. And that's why God has also given us his word. Not just his world book, as Spurgeon put it, but he's given us his word book. So now we look at the scriptures, our second heading. See, Psalm 19, uh, in Psalm 19, David uses two different Hebrew names for God. In verse 1, David uses the Hebrew word El, which is the most gen generic and general of all the names for God. And so if you look back at Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, El. And the sky proclaims his handiwork. And David uses this general Hebrew name for God, El, because I think that verses 1 to 6 are making the point that the sky and all of creation, for that matter, proclaims and declares to us that God exists and he's powerful, and he's glorious, but we need to know more than that. And that's why in verse 7, David switches to using another name, Hebrew name for God, that's the name Yahweh which reads as Lord with all capital letters, capital L, capital O, R, and D in your Bibles. So we look at verse 7. The law of the Lord, Yahweh, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, Yahweh is God's unique, intimate covenant name, which he gives to his people. So in summary, the natural world points us to the creator God in general, but we need and we have the specific, personal, intimate, covenantal words from Yahweh to his people, and they're only found in the Bible. And so that's what David's going to speak about now in verses 7 to 11 in Psalm 19. And he uses several different words, all as synonyms for the Bible. He's going to refer to the law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, and rules. 
These are all synonyms for God's word. So in the second half of Psalm 19, David goes on to speak about the Bible's great worth. And put another way, to assure us that the Bible is absolutely true and that it really is given to us in love for our good. If only we would believe that. If only we would believe that. And so these next few verses, I mean, they're simple enough to understand, but if only we would really believe them, right? Not just in here on Sunday morning, but if we believe them on Wednesday at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. If only we would believe them. Let's believe them. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And so think about that word perfect. It's sound. God's word is sound, complete, sufficient, not lacking anything, and it's all you need. Now, the Bible does not tell us everything about everything. Okay? If you've got to study for a calculus exam, you should study for that in your textbook, not in the Bible. Okay? However, the Bible does tell us everything we need to know for how to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You know, as our shorter catechism, question three asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? The, principle, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now think about that phrase, reviving the soul. If only we believe that. You see, the perfect word of God is uniquely able to revive your soul but not because you own one. Not because it's on your desk or on your shelf. Not because you downloaded the app onto your phone. But the Bible is able to revive your soul if you will read it. Open it up and read it. Study it. Put yourself under the regular faithful preaching of God's word and seek and seek to obey it. When we do that, we find that God's word really does breathe new life into our weary souls in a way that nothing else can. In a way that, you know, I mean, rest is important. You know, get a good night's sleep, okay? I hope you do that. But the Bible can revive your soul in a way that a nap can't. The Bible can revive your soul in a way that, that no food or drink can. Can revive your soul in a way that no vacation can. It can most certainly revive your soul in a way that, that Netflix or whatever your favorite streaming service can't do, or that the various social media outlets can't do. You see, we all need to remember this, but students, please remember this next year or next week, tomorrow, when you find yourself weary and worn out. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You know, I, don't know, I don't know how you felt this morning whenever you woke up. My guess is most of us felt weary, felt tired, felt worn out. But I hope you know that according to God's word, that what you are doing right now is the very best thing that you could possibly be doing today to revive your soul. The next thing we see in verse 7 is the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's sure, it's trustworthy, it's firm and confirmed. We can count on it. And it makes wise the simple. Okay, now some of you guys aren't simple, but it still makes you wise. Makes wise the simple. 
you know, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, and wisdom's far better, right? Knowledge is knowing things. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the things that you know, right? Wisdom's far better, and the Bible promises to make you wise because what it says is sure and trustworthy. You know, in the New Testament book of James, chapter 1, verse 5, we read this promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, let him pray to God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you lack wisdom and you want it, God says, come and get it. Pray and ask him for wisdom. However, it's unwise to pray for wisdom and then refuse to actually open up and read and study and sit under the preaching of God's word, which makes wise the simple. Now look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They're right. And so that word right, think they're straight as opposed to being crooked. They are morally straight, ethically straight, as opposed to the crooked and perverse lies which are all around us. The crooked and perverse lies which our culture tells us day after day, these lies that the culture tries to persuade us and convince us of that are good, healthy, and life-giving when they're really just the opposite of all those things. You see, as James tells us, that sin, sin gives birth to death not life. It gives birth to death, not life. See, sin never, ever takes you where you want to go. It promises that you're going to be better off, but it never delivers on those promises. It never makes things better. And sin always offers you the worst of possible deals because it always costs way more than you ever expected to pay. And sin will betray you, deceive you. It will take you way further than you ever thought possible that you would go. See, the Bible is the divine plumb line by which every one of our thoughts, words, actions, and even desires should be measured. And whenever our thoughts, our words, our actions, our desires are out of line with God's word, then God is right and we are wrong. We are the one who needs to repent. Our mind is the one that needs to be changed. See, the precepts of the Lord are right. The next phrase, rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. You know why? Because these words are not the words of an evil tyrant. These words are not the words of someone who just wants to to steal your joy. These are the words from your heavenly Father. And they're absolutely true. And they really are given to you, to us in love for our good, if only we would believe that. The second half of, eight, of verse 8 says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Pure. Another translation uses radiant. The idea is that God's word is radiant or pure light, and it enlightens the eyes so that we can see, so that we can see what's really there, what's really there before us. So that we can see which way to go. I mean, dear Christian, you really can have clarity and guidance and direction for your life. But you can't have it. You're not going to have it apart from the pure light of God's word. You see, with our Bibles open before us, in our hands, reading them, then we're not blind anymore. We're no longer groping about in the dark. But this is only as if, if we will open up and read our Bibles. Study it. 
put ourselves regularly under the faithful preaching of God's word, hide it in our hearts. You see, God leads us and he guides us by the Holy Spirit, working through the word of God in our hearts. Verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, the fear of the Lord might be an unusual phrase uh, for David to use to describe the Bible, but I think the point here is that our response to the Bible should be this biblical sense of fear, reverence and awe, that we don't stand over the Bible as if we're the authority, as if we're the judge, and we pick and choose you know, which chapters to rip out and discard and which ones to highlight and magnify, but that, that, that we seek to be as balanced as the Bible is balanced and that we live and we live and we preach and we trust the whole counsel of God's word. We don't stand over the Bible. We don't even stand alongside the Bible, but rather we submit to it. We arrange ourselves under the Bible. It's our authority. We submit to it as individuals. And what does the Bible have to say for me as an individual? What does the Bible have to say for my family and the decisions and the priorities we set as a family, as a married couple? And we as a church, we don't think that we're free just to do whatever we want to do. Rather, we are under the authority of the Bible. And the Bible determines what we preach, how we worship, how we seek to minister to our neighbors. See, the fear of the Lord, verse 9 says, is clean. That's interesting, it's clean. As I thought about this, I, I think there is an unclean fear, and I think we all know what that feels like, and it doesn't feel good. I think it's like whenever we're afraid of being caught. Whenever we're anxious and we're fearful that everything's going to be exposed. That, that unclean fear, that unclean conscience is really a miserable way to live. But then there's a clean fear, reverence and awe of the Lord that comes from reading, studying, sitting under the preaching of God's word, seeking to obey it. And that fear is not terror or dread, but it's reverence and awe. And we see the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Enduring forever. You see, corrupt and imperfect things don't last forever. They decay. But Dave is telling us that God's word is perfectly clean and pure and changeless and enduring. It will last forever. Which Jesus will say something very similar in Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then we see in the second half of verse 9 and in verse 10, the rules of the Lord are true and, all, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The David says God's word is greater, better, sweeter, more valuable than all the money and all the honey in the world. And we don't know when David wrote Psalm 19, but if it's in later in his life, whenever he's the king, I mean, think about what he says here. David's saying, friends, I've had it all. I'm the king. Nothing has been or can be denied me. What I'm telling you is that God's word is better than all of that. It's more desired than fine gold. That God's word is sweeter than honey. And in, and in David's day, nothing was sweeter than honey. Now, you might not be a big fan of honey, so, um, you know, then 
I hope that you'll be convinced that what David's saying is that God's word is better, more satisfying than, than your favorite entree at your favorite restaurant. That, that God's word is, is sweeter than your favorite flavor of bluebell ice cream. That, that, that God's word is even better than queso. Okay, how about that? It's better than all of that. That God's word really is that precious. It's that precious. It's better than all the money and all the honey in the world. As Moses put it in the book of Deuteronomy, these words are not idle words, they are your life. As Jesus put it when he's tempted in the wilderness, it's your food. Paul describes the Bible in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 as God breathed. Life, food, breath, it's that precious. And then look at verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. You see, God's word warns us against sin. And sin's harmful and even devastating effects. That God's word warns us against the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, that this warning is what John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, had in mind whenever he said, this book, talking about the Bible, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. That opening the Bible, not just having one, but reading it, studying it, sitting under the faithful preaching of it, talking about it at your dinner table, with your spouse, with your roommates, with your friends, with your children, will keep you from sin as we seek to obey God's word. And, it persu- and we're persuaded that, that it really is life. That this book will keep us from sin, or sin will keep us from this book. And I hope you'll hear me, okay? Everybody, but especially you know, the younger adults, these graduating seniors, hear me on this. Don't let sin keep you from this book. Because what, what too often happens is that we sin, we blow it. We commit that sin yet again, and then we think the last thing I can possibly do is begin to pray. I blow it, I sin yet again, that same sin again. I can't open my Bible, I better shut it, I better put it away. I can't go back to church, I can't go back to the Bible study, I can't re-engage with those Christian friends because now I've got, I blew it so badly that now I've got to let some time pass, okay, between that sin and before I can re-engage and I've got to try as hard as I can to be better, try as hard as I can to clean my life up some. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You've got to stop thinking that way. Please, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, never, ever, ever let sin keep you from this book. Spiritual maturity, growing up in Christ, is that when we sin, not if, but when we sin, that we become quicker to own it, to acknowledge it, to confess that sin, to repent of it, to turn away from it, and and, and to receive and to accept the grace of God that Christ has purchased for us with his life, death, and his resurrection. That's why each and every Lord's Day, we not only have a, a, a time of confession of sin, but we also have an assurance of pardon and comfort because we want you to know that there is grace for you. That no one in this room is a lost cause. No one in this room is too far gone. Don't let sin keep you from this book. Do not let sin keep you from repenting and receiving God's grace 
in beginning to follow Christ back again. Verse 11 says, Moreover, by them as your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Now, in keeping the Bible, there is great reward. I mean, verse 11 is very clear. But I worry that too many people make the mistake of thinking that Christianity is about God rewarding the good people and punishing the bad people. And that so if we quit doing the bad things and start doing the good things, we do that long enough and well enough, then God just might like us and forgive us and, and save us. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ. We trust in him and all that he has done with his life, death, and resurrection. All of his works, what they have accomplished for us. And so James Boyce, I think, is helpful here. He says, the text does not say that the one who obeys God's commands will be rewarded, though that's certainly true too. It says, rather, in keeping them there is great reward. St. Augustine once said that sin is its own punishment. He could also have said that virtue is its own reward. You see, the reward is found in keeping God's word. That the obedient Christian is actually blessed in her obedience. There's a real sense in which obedience is its own reward. That obedience and holiness and faithfulness is the joyful way to live life, the blessed life. You see, God's word, yes, it's, it's, there are three ways to really think about God's word. It, yes, it's, it's a mirror. We look into God's word and it shows us our sin and our need for a savior. It points us to Christ, and we'll talk more about that in a few moments. It's a mirror, but it's also a path. The Bible is telling us how to live, how we are designed to live, how our heavenly father who loves us and who's given us his word in, in love for our good has for us to live and to carry out our lives and lead our families. It's, it's a path. But the Bible is also a fence. It's a fence that protects us and that sets, you know, bountiful and healthy and wonderful boundaries and a hedge of protection around us so that within that fence, living within that fence in, in accord with God's word, then we, we, we are free and we're joyful and life is sweet and precious. See, nothing compares to a life lived with a clean conscience, seeking to obey God's word, growing in grace, being sanctified, being enabled by the Holy Spirit to die more and more into sin and to live more and more into righteousness. But you may say, but Richard, my conscience is not clean. I know that. I've been a pastor long enough. This is a room big enough. And so let's look at our sin. That's what David does next. Look at verse 12 and 13. He asks this question, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So after David writes this psalm about God's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous word, David can't help but to admit that he's guilty of both unintentional sins, the, the hidden faults of verse 12, and presumptuous sins or the, the willful sins of verse 13. And notice at the end of verse 13, he says, Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, David knows that, that if the sin in his heart were an ocean, it would be impossible to reach bottom or shore with both hidden and presumptuous sins. Yet notice, David still believes it's possible for a sinner like him to be counted blameless and innocent. 
that it's possible for a sinner like me to still be counted blameless and innocent. It is possible for a sinner like you to be counted blameless and innocent. But how can this be? This is our final heading. We're going to look at our Savior. And look at verse 14. A familiar verse to many, maybe to most of you. You've, you've heard this, pray, this, this verse pray as a prayer before many sermons. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let me ask you again, how is this possible? How can the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts, as sinful as we know they are, ever be acceptable in God's sight? How can David admit his own personal sin and still expect to be acceptable and pleasing in the sight of a holy God who takes sin very seriously? A God who who cannot, will not, must not, you know, just turn a blind eye to our sin. Who must deal with our sin justly. How can this be? And the answer is Christ. The answer is Christ. See, David's faith and confidence here in Psalm 19 is not found in his own moral resume. Okay? If you're not familiar with the life of David, just pick up and read starting in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Okay, and read this afternoon until you find a reason to close the book and throw it away. Because you know what? It, it, it's, you see that David is, is not this great hero of the faith. He's a sinner in need of a great Savior. But So David's faith and confidence is not found in his own moral resume. Rather, it's rooted in his covenant-keeping God, who, yes, is holy, but who also provides a way for sinners like David to offer sacrifices to atone for their sins as they waited and longed for the Savior and the Redeemer who would come. And yet, at our privileged place in the history of redemption, we know who that Savior is. That we know who this rock and this Redeemer really is. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, speaking of the Israelites following Moses in the wilderness, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Who is the rock and the redeemer of Psalm 19? Who Who was David's hope? Who is our hope? He's Jesus. And all of God's word is pointing us to him. All of God's word is pointing us to Christ. Remember what Christ, what the risen Christ taught his disciples in Luke 24, verses 44 to 45. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, even Psalm 19, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see, the second half of Psalm 19 is about the word of God. But do you know that Christ not only speaks the word of God, he is the word of God. It's what John 1.1 teaches us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses down in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we look back through Psalm 19, specifically that second half, that second section, verses 7 to 11, all of those words, all those adjectives that describe that describe God's word, also describe Christ. See, Christ is perfect. He's perfect in the ultimate sense. Every one of Jesus' words and every meditation of his heart was perfectly acceptable to God the Father every day and every way. 
that he is the Lamb of God without blemish who offers himself as such to God to atone for the sins of his people. Christ is sure and faithful. He is the sure and faithful high priest who's the only mediator between God and man. That Christ is right. He's righteous. He's perfectly righteous and upright in every way. That he lived the perfect and sinless, righteous life we've all failed to live. And Christ's righteousness is imputed, given, credited to all who trust him for salvation by grace through faith. And Christ is pure and clean. He's able to make us clean by by the washing of his shed blood on the cross. The shed blood which washes all of our sin away. As the old hymn puts it, rock of ages. Remember, we're talking about the rock, our rock and our redeemer at the end of Psalm 19. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. See, Christ is our rock and our redeemer. And as we look at the sky and we look at the scriptures and we look at our sin, all of this should and it must lead us to look at Christ, our Savior, our rock and our redeemer. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word indeed is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Your word is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And we're thankful, Father, that that by your word we are warned, and that in keeping your word there is great reward. And Father, we're thankful that all of your word, even Psalm 19, points us to our rock and our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we, see, may we see all of your creation testifying, declaring, proclaiming your existence, your power, your majesty, your creativity, your glory. And may we be people who not only know about the Bible, who own multiple Bibles, but may we be people who open and who take and read and study We hear it preached. We discuss it with our friends and our families and our homes. Lord, please, help us to always believe that your word is absolutely true and that it is given to us in love for our good. Please write these truths upon our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.